All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. Thank you, everybody who's attending live. Uh, today is election day, so there's uh, a lot of anxiety probably in there, a lot of people nervous. People should be hopefully voting. Uh, for those of you in the podcast, you get this after the election, so the same kind of feelings might be there uh, depending on this goes live <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, so today it is obviously myself, Justin, and Joe. And we are honored to have our dear friend and colleague and a top level professional in our field, uh, Dr. Thomas Zane. We'll be calling him Tom throughout the talk. Uh, before we let Tom give a brief introduction of himself, Joe's gonna go over the ground rules because he gets it in season two to go over the ground rules. I was fortunate enough to get it in season one. That means you get season three, right? Sure. Um, well, so if you're watching this live, uh, we encourage you to ask questions. We really use those questions to drive the discussion and bring you into the discussion. There's two ways for you to ask questions. One is through the chat box. Uh, I don't prefer that way because if the chat gets going, it's hard to follow through with your questions and make sure that they get answered. The preferred way is using the Q&A. That allows you to ask questions uh, anonymously or if you want to throw your name on or we can bring you on with audio and you can join in the discussion there if you feel comfortable with that. Uh, so definitely while the discussion is going, ask questions, get into the discussion and, and let's make this more of a, not us talking at you, but you talking with us. Uh, every rant is free, whether you're catching it live or via podcast. If you want CEUs for any rant that you listen to live or, or via the podcast, uh, just go to www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Uh, you'll just enter the opening and the closing words uh, after you add the rant to your cart, answer the, the question with those keywords, and uh, then you get CEUs. I'll go ahead and throw that in the chat box because that's a very long URL. Uh, so if you're catching this live, you can uh, view it via the chat box. If you're listening on the podcast, it should be right below where you're listening. Um, so with that, I want to give our esteemed guest an opportunity to introduce himself so everybody knows him as well as we do. So uh, you want to take it away, Tom? Sure. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Tom Zane and uh, right now, my current job is um, I'm the director of online programs and behavior analysis at the University of Kansas. Uh, a little bit about my history. Um, I'm a Midwestern boy. I went to Western Michigan University for my, under, for my uh, bachelor's and master's degree. Um, I went there as a, as a business major, but then, as you all probably understand, psychology is often part of the general requirements. And if you know anything about Western, you know it's all radical behavioral. So, you know, I clearly remember Psych 101, I was sitting at a little table with an experimental chamber on the table and with three other students and some grad student came by and dumped a white rat in the chamber and said, this is the lever and this is the button to provide reinforcement, get it to press the lever. 
and I never looked back. That was my first exposure to behavior analysis, and of course, I've stayed with it. I did my master's degree there under Dick Malott. We did, um, we, my thesis was to modify littering behavior uh, in a movie theater. Uh, it worked out really well. The, the only problem was for about three weeks, they were playing The Exorcist while I was running my thesis. And um, I needed a, a couple of years of psychotherapy afterwards. But it was a good experience at Western. Um, and then I got my PhD at West, uh, West Virginia University. I worked with uh, Don Hake there, who was an, ex uh, an experimental guy, a translational guy, actually. Uh, so that's my educational um, background. I've worked uh, in different places, a lot of clinical places, um, autism and special education in general. Um, I had a, uh, a research scientist position with Joe Brady at Johns Hopkins, where I, we had a grant from NASA to do experiments on isolation and confinement, which was really, really fun. Uh, but since then, once the Challenger blew up, I moved back to academia, and I've been in academia ever since. I consider myself a radical behaviorist. I've just loved our field, and I've heard really great opportunities for training from some really great people. And um, yeah, I consider myself a radical behaviorist and I, I'm very interested about what happens in our field currently and into the future. So I guess that's what I'll say about myself. Wonderful, wonderful. And it definitely fits into uh, our topic today, one worldview to rule them all. Yeah. And I realized as I was doing the, the logistics, I never actually said what the opening word was for people who want CEU. So I'll go ahead and throw that out now. The opening word is go, uh, G-O, go. Um, so with that, and thank you for that wonderful introduction, uh, let's, I guess we can just jump right into it. And I think it might be useful for us first to orient anyone who's listening to what a worldview is and what the worldview of behavior analysis is. We've thrown, you, you said you're a radical behaviorist a few times. Uh, maybe it'd be good for us to unpack uh, worldview and, and what radical behaviorism is to, to start the conversation. Sure. So um, I'll put it in my own words. It may not be as articulate as others, but the worldview to me is um, like the framework or the lens that we look through when looking at a phenomenon. And in our case, it's behavior, right? And so um, it's our particular stance or our perspective on behavior. Um, now our worldview, of course, is radical behaviorism in science. And the importance of the worldview is, is, can't be um, under, um, underestimated. The worldview gives us this uh, perspective on how we're going to look at problems, how we're going to assess behavior, and then obviously how we're going to treat it. So um, different worldviews you know, approach behavior and problems differently. For example, uh, the medical worldview, right? So they, they view uh, appropriate behavior um, as a function of a, a complete, you know, uh, um, medical situation, like good physiology, good neural development, good neural functioning and all that sort of thing. Problem behavior, learning problems or behavior problems um, are viewed from that same lens, right? So there's a, a medical issue going on, a dysfunctional, you know, a disease or something like that. And the worldview um, matters. It matters on how you assess and treat. So let's go back to the worldview. So when I was a younger person working at a, um, a typical institution for developmental disabilities in, in North Carolina, there was this young man 
uh, in his early 20s with severe cognitive delays. And he was a biter. He would spend his time biting people. Um, now, uh, we would look at that problem the way we look at our problems through our worldview and look at the function and all that. Well, the medical worldview dictated a particular treatment and they pulled all the teeth in the guy's head uh, to stop that behavior. That's from their medical worldview, right? That's from their worldview. So the worldview is very important to us in describing, defining, uh, influencing our behavior as clinicians and as behavior analysts. It dictates to us how we assess behavior and how we think about treatment. So overall, that's the, a worldview. It's your stance or perspective that frames how you talk about the phenomenon that you're interested in. It's your outlook on that particular phenomenon. Uh, it's the lens through which you deal with uh, whatever the phenomena it is. And then I already mentioned, you know, our worldview as behavior analysts is one of natural science. You know, we've all studied this in our schooling, right? It's not really a surprise where we uh, look at behavior environment relations and that's how we think about behavior, no matter where we are, no matter what the behavioral situation is, right? Whether it's your, with your spouse or with students in a class or with your clients, uh, when we look at a behavior and say, why is that happening? Uh, our worldview uh, influences to talk about that in the way that we all know how to talk about that. Um, and the problem is, of course, which leads into the bigger discussion here is there's different worldviews and the hypothesis that I have and several of us have is that um, behavior analysts may be drifting or some behavior analysts may be drifting from the hardcore radical worldview. And then that brings us into lots of problems. So. Wonderfully said. And okay, I good. think it's, uh, it, it really gets down to the root of the problem when uh, the lens through which we're looking at a phenomenon, we're looking at the same phenomenon through different lenses. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Because the phenomenon that we're interested in as behavior analysts is, is behavior. Uh, and so there's different worldviews, like you had said, that look at that phenomenon in very different ways. Mm -hmm. And what it, and, and essentially what we've kind of talked about and what I think was, is coming up in this discussion uh, is that can cause some problems. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is, is Indic indicative of the drift that you were talking about, mm -hmm. uh, the drift away from radical behaviorism. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can chat, like, what do we see as indicators of that drift actually happening? Sure, I'd be glad to. So um, unfortunately or fortunately, I've been exposed to uh, lots of occurrences of drift. So um, often uh, I, it's presented to me, someone writes me about some situation that is evidence of drift. So a couple examples. Uh, a few years ago, we, uh, we meaning John Bailey and I, uh, stumbled upon a certified behavior analyst who's also a certified hypnotist. And um, in our opinion, uh, hypnotists don't really adhere to our worldview. And then the problem is, we've got a BCBA who should be trained in the radical behavioral worldview, but now also has in her head uh, another worldview that um, I would say is not scientific, 
is more mentalistic and more um, mystical than uh, what it should be. So that leads to problems, right? Um, another um, example is sensory integration uh, therapy and that particular worldview of sensory dysfunction, right? Or sensory integration where there's a processing center somewhere in the brain uh, which uh, processes incoming sensory input and then uh, after the processing, uh, behavior results, either appropriate behavior if the processing is normal or inappropriate behavior or learning problems if the processing is dysfunctional. And there's many BCBAs who um, practice sensory integration therapy. And it's a good, another good example of how if for those individuals, they've got two or more worldviews in their heads. And I would submit to everybody that you only have one worldview in your head. And it should be the one that you're trained on. And that's a big problem. And the problem is a conceptual one. And you might call it a practical one, right, Joe? So um, if, you're, if you are presented with a behavioral issue, then um, these BCBAs, for example, who also do sensory integration training, um, how do they choose which worldview to use in any particular uh, situation, right? And like I said before, the worldview is going to dictate assessment. It's going to dictate treatment. Uh, and so I don't know what the variables are that would allow a BCBA to choose. Well, for this case, I'm going to be a sensory integration therapist. Or in this case, I'm going to be a behavioral analytic person. That's a problem. And it's, uh, it's, um, it uh, waters down our field. And you know, there's a lot of other consequences for uh, drifting from our field, but that's the bottom line, a practical matter. How do you train? How do you treat? How do you assess if you have more than one worldview in your head? So Tom, I know you said that you don't, uh, don't know exactly, but do you have any hunches of why you think behavior analysts today are drifting more and more away from this radical behaviorist views? Do you have any uh, yeah. hypothesis of why that's occurring? Yeah, I do. Uh, again, try to do a functional assessment of that, right? And see what we come up with. So first I'll say that Kim Schreck from Pennsylvania has done a couple of great articles on, on this topic. So in 2008, I think it was, she surveyed about 400 BCBAs and asked them questions about to what extent do you use this treatment, this treatment, this treatment, this treatment. And first of all, that study, that 2008 study, uh, is good solid evidence of the drift. Back then, some BCBAs admitted that they dabbled in facilitated communication, for God's sakes, you know? So 2008, a lot of good evidence for that. Then in 2016, she basically replicated that, but then she asked them, uh, Justin, what variables influenced you doing this particular uh, non-behavioral treatment? And she broke it into antecedent variables and consequence variables. And so, um, you know, I don't remember all of the uh, reasons cited, but some included um, the research is good for this particular non-behavioral treatment. Like they would cite center integration as solid research to support it. Well, that makes you think that these people weren't trained in good research design, right? Um, one variable that blew me away was about 60% of these people um, reported that their supervisors 
in their BCBA training recommended that they try these different treatments. And to me, of course, that's shocking and horrible and uh, makes you want to start sniffing glue again, you know. Um, and there's also things like parental influence. So a BCBA might, for example, start working with a family and they may say, well, can you do this therapeutic approach? And so due to pressure or whatever, trying to please, they might begin doing that particular treatment. And then in terms of consequences, uh, you can imagine some of them. Um, I think that a BCBA who has more than one worldview, which, which then allows them to dabble in treatments other than behavioral ones, they probably have uh, more financial reinforcers, right? They can offer a wider variety of treatment uh, and make more money possibly. Um, I think also they get some attention for that, you know, to aim to please parents, to help parents as much as they can. Um, those are the ones I remember that I think are, are operative and make sense. Yeah, there's one that I think I remember. I, I don't have as great a memory on research articles as uh, my dear colleague Joe has, but I do remember one of them being uh, propaganda and mm. propaganda of certain interventions being uh, out there in different mm. media formats. And I assume mm. social media yeah. greatly can have propaganda. I think we see that right now on yeah. Facebook pages where infactual things are being stated and people are allowed to say whatever they would like to say without any regulation or rules. Mm -hmm. And so it brings, I bring that up because the question that the audience member asked with all the discussions happening in social media lately, and Tom, I don't know if you're on social media a bunch, but there's a lot of uh, media discussions about what interventions to do, or is ABA abusive or harmful? And those are the discussions I assume the person asking is. So with all the discussions happening in social media lately, how can we sure, ensure that we stay true to the science of behavior analysis, analysis and not get confused with it all? So what can we do uh, when we see this stuff happening, propaganda happening? Well, uh, I think that uh, we behavior analysts need to respond to that stuff. Um, I, you know, if you think about our ethical code, um, we, we are obligated to disseminate information about our field. And I don't know if it's worded this way, but I feel very strongly that we need, we need to defend our field from erroneous comments and misunderstandings. Uh, there's a danger of reinforcing uh, those people who are real critics. And I understand that, but I think we need to uh, reach out and try to explain our position to, to debunk uh, misunderstandings in, in a positive, appropriate way. But I, I wouldn't let um, misunderstandings stand. And uh, that's my opinion on it. If yeah, that makes sense. I, yeah, I agree with you. And I think the problem, as you know, I think you agree with, uh, the problem is that there's, it's a young field now, right? A lot of the BCBAs, and mm -hmm. Trotman, who was a guest on a previous episodes said that a majority or a high near majority are under five years of experience as BCBAs. Mm -hmm. We have RBTs in there who mm -hmm. only get 40 hours, so they don't need the training or they don't have the training to be able to do that. So I think it's uh, people who are well-versed need to really stick up for science and the importance mm -hmm. of science and the importance of this worldview. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Um, 
you know, and then that gets into uh, the preparation that people get, right, in their programs. And you know, a lot of us worry that um, the preparation for becoming a behavior, behavior analyst or a BCBA um, isn't as focused on the conceptual stuff um, as it used to be. Um, you know, in, in the, the paper uh, we wrote on Worldview, you know, we talk about McCork uh, Branch of Malagodi back in the 80s said, where have all the behaviorists gone? Jack Michael back in the 80s in his presidential address, uh, worried that the training, uh, the hard core conceptual training wasn't happening as much. And I kind of believe that, uh, you know, then we get people coming into the field who um, come from different um, disciplines, uh, like uh, particularly the BCBAs who come in with their mail, the people who have already have a master's who come into the BCBA training, you know, they've already been imprinted on different um, disciplines and fields of study. And, and sometimes I think that that kind of uh, impedes the full understanding and the full embracing of a natural science approach. But I think the training um, is a piece that doesn't really suck people in completely to a radical behavioral view. Uh, well, and I think that's how to answer the other part of that question, how we stay true to a science of behavior analysis. I mean, there's a lot in that question, but it, to me, it all comes down to training. Like Tom, what you were saying with what got you into the field, the the rat being put in front of you and it's like, mm -hmm. here's a bar, here's mm -hmm. a reinforcer, get him to press the lever. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that really happens much anymore within our field. I was lucky enough to go to a, a university from a master's program that still had like a, a pigeon lab and, and a rat lab that was developed while I was there. So you were able to get that experience. Uh, but I think a, a lot of people don't really get that practical experience and 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 so, our repertoires become less contingency shaped and right. more rule governed and right. then more susceptible to uh, looking at things in ways that wouldn't necessarily align with the behavior analytic worldview. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, it's not contingency shaped as much anymore. Um, and I think that's a problem. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. But still, it's also the, the conceptual understanding of uh, like how many worldviews can you have in your head at one time? Because they're often incompatible you know like like just think about the worldview of uh, a natural science or radical behaviorism and the worldview of uh you know i'll go back to sensor integration you know they have different explanations for why behavior happens and they're so contradictory you would think that everybody would say well, both can't happen you know you can't just switch from one to the other because it's a complete uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it. It's a complete, like, it's almost impossible to switch, you know, how you think about behaviors from one worldview to another one. You would think that that would catch on and uh, be very clear in people that you can't switch back and forth like that because of the, of the, just the, the incompatibility of these things. They're the basic nature of explaining behavior. Well, and, and what you just said fits into a question that came in during the chat. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn us to that. Um, 
And the question is, since other worldviews can produce procedures with some degree of efficacy uh, that may represent a valuable approach, can you talk about your thoughts regarding the contrast between translating those successes into a radical behaviorist frame versus switching worldviews or trying to hold two at the same time versus rejecting potentially valuable information coming from a different community just because of a flawed or incompatible interpretive uh, worldview slash framework? Mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, so um, if we see um, a strategy or technique that um, there may be evidence for its success, like empirical evidence for success, um, it could be considered behavioral, I guess, um, if it would be conceptually consistent, conceptually systematic with um, our worldview with our science. So if you think back to Bear, Wolf and Risley, 68, um, they made that point. Obviously that's one of the seven dimensions. So um, you can look at that procedure and see if it can be described or explained through behavioral principles, you know? And then uh, possibly it would be open to a, uh, a more accommodating or acceptable um, analysis. But so I'm thinking as I talk about that, like uh, the Greenspan approach, where it's, you know, supposedly child, I don't know much about it, but, you know, you, you, you play, it's play based and, and it on the face of it looks like a lot of good behavioral programming where you're maybe following the child's lead or you're, you're providing activities that might be reinforcing to certain behaviors and that sort of thing. So on the face of it, it might look like behavior analysis. But what gets me about that is it's conceptually completely different. Uh, there are not, uh, their worldview is completely different from ours. So um, I, I think some of these strategies and tactics from different, uh, that are based on different worldviews, they may look behavioral, they may uh, imitate some of the things that we do, but bottom line is they're based on a different conceptualization of behavior and thus, I don't think uh, we should be doing them. Yeah, to, uh, I completely agree. I think the, the question comes up, um, if, you, if I can maintain more than one worldview, are there areas of incompatibility or are there areas of potential compatibility? Uh, like there's, there's been Malagoti in, in 86 talked about what we can learn from and benefit from cultural materialism uh, as radical behaviorists. Uh, so I think the, it's, it's not difficult to maintain more than one worldview if there aren't a bunch of areas of conflict. Uh, I think the problem is when those areas of conflict comes in, which one of those wins out in terms of how you're going to look at the phenomenon, how you're going to intervene on the phenomenon of interest. Uh, so to me, it isn't, um, can you? Because I think the majority of behavior analysts probably hold more than one worldview. The, to me, the question is, uh, how much does it provide an alternative conceptualization for the phenomenon of interest, which in our case is, is behavior? Mm -hmm. And if it does provide an alternative conceptualization, uh, then I think we have a problem. And, it's, and I, I think the, the, we need to make sure that we're not saying that any worldviews are inferior or right. um, like radical behaviorism is, is, is superior to them. They're just different. It's just They're a different, different conceptualization. But I think the problem comes in and I think it's with practice. 
when there's a lot of practicing behavior analysts that are using an alternative conceptualization for behavior and how behavior develops and, and what behavior is a function of to influence their interventions, mm -hmm. but labeling it as behavior analysis, that's when we run into lots of problems. Oh, totally. They can't label those things as behavior analysis. And um, again, the worldview dictates the way we work. And so if someone comes in with a different conceptualization, uh, they're going to do assessments differently, for example. Um, and then certainly treatments will flow probably from the assessments and those treatments will be based on some sort of a worldview that, that's uh, in contrast to ours. And and I always go back to our philosophy, right? Uh, the natural science view uh, far and away is uh, kind of proven across the centuries to give us the closest thing to truth and validity uh, as we can be at any particular point in time. I don't view any sort of uh, approach uh, as uh, of, to its equal, right? And so, um, I don't know why we would deviate from the natural science perspective. Uh, it's data-based, it's empirical, it's deterministic, um, and that should trump all other worldviews. Again, they're not necessarily inferior, they're different, but ours has stood the test of time. It's answered a lot of questions. Uh, for decades, it has repeatedly helped us identify behavior-environment relations and helped us dispense um, beliefs and hypotheses that are simply irrelevant with regards to the causes of behavior. It's been proven. And um, I don't know, I, I can't say that any other worldview is as good as that. Um, so it's a problem. Joe, you might want to put in that cultural materialism reference in there so I can read it because uh, <laughs> I can do that. So others might enjoy that as well. I think what you're, what I'm hearing with it and a theme, and I'm going to tie it into a question that came up, uh, goes back to training. And I think with um, training, it's also being a scientist, mm -hmm. right? and understanding confounding variables and what's causing behavior change. And I, I'm saying this because I see a lot of times people who don't have our worldview or radical behaviors worldview are attributing behavior change to mm -hmm. something else mm -hmm. in the environment, but they're not considering the different confounding variables that might've got the change. I remember uh, talking to someone about, I forget what the intervention is. And they said, no, the intervention is successful because the data showed it's successful. And it was just asking them, well, did you control for this? Did you control right. for that? Did you control yeah. for that? And the answer is no, no, no. So it's like, okay, maybe your intervention was successful, but it could have been a slew of other things and we mm -hmm. don't know. And mm -hmm. so I think that's the important part of training. And I tie it into the question from our audience. And the question is, is it important to be strong conceptually to be better at the applied parts of the science? Yes, I think so. I think we need strong conceptualization. So as you were talking, Justin, I was thinking about the training we do get. So most of us are trained in the natural science approach and all that that means, like I said, you know, there's, it's a deterministic attitude, right? And it's an empirical attitude. And it's, uh, uh, you know, we value replication and careful data collection. If, you, if we're trained in all of that, then that provides us the tools for evaluating and assessing behavior environment relations. And those tools would then 
um, we can apply them to any other research or case study or clinical intervention, and we are able to vet those uh, methodologies. And our tools, our training, should allow us to see that um, what the real variables are that are impacting behavior and extraneous variables, kind of like what you were talking about, that may be alternative explanations. I think about a study in the Journal of Occupational Therapy um, from several years ago. It was a study on um, some sort of sensory integration technique designed to reduce problem behavior. And so there's five graphs in the study, five individuals. It was an AB design. Uh, baseline show, showed kind of high levels of the problem behavior. Then they intervened with the sensory strategy, doesn't matter what it was. And then they had reductions, uh, the graph showed reductions in problem behavior. The conclusion of that article by these occupational therapists were that the sensory strategy uh, was the cause of the behavior change. But our training would see many flaws with that conclusion, right? First of all, it was AB, and no AB design proves cause and effect. Uh, the baselines in some of those uh, subjects were going down in baseline. The rate was going down in baseline. And so it was filled with uh, confounding variables. And our training can vet that, can pull that apart, and help us understand that there may be something going on with that treatment that, a lot, that uh, makes us skeptical that that treatment was the cause of that behavior change. Other trainings don't go as deep into that sort of issue as we do. So I think our training, our training, the point is our training is kind of like a safeguard. It, it keeps us from drifting into um, areas or conclusions or hypotheses that um, keep us from a hardcore natural science assessment or critique of what's going on. So it does come down to training. Well, and based on that, I think we need to, there's, there's problems with the training. Uh, so I, I'll bring it, try to bring in this question and tie it all together. So part of this question is, what are the dangers of assuming that we have this radical behaviorist worldview? Uh, and the second part of the question is, what are some signs that we might not have it? I think we've talked a lot about the signs that we might not have it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a huge danger in assuming um, that BCBAs have this radical behaviorist worldview, because I think our training and the contingencies within our field are actually driving the opposite. Uh, you know, if Branch and Malagoti were asking where the behavior analysts have gone in 1980, uh, that was before there's this huge push for mm -hmm. we need a lot of trained behavior analysts, especially mm -hmm. in the field of, of autism. So how do we scale down our training in a way that can create good practitioners, but not necessarily, and, and I think what we've done is that exactly. Right. So we're training good practitioners, or at least right. practitioners, and not good thoroughgoing radical behaviorists. And I think as one sign of the contingency is um, what you can do if you're not doing something that falls under a behavior analytic worldview. Like you just need to throw on this qualifier that it doesn't fall under my training and you can do it. And that's coming from, you know, the, the highest level of right, the people right. that can say it's okay to do it. Right, right. Well, we shouldn't get too started on that issue. <laughs> but uh, you're right about the training. I think 
we're training good uh, practitioners uh, compared to like decades ago because of, it's kind of funny, due to our adherence on science and scientific evidence, we vetted procedures that are evidence-based, right? Now we can actually teach those procedures uh, to people in our training programs. And because of that, they're doing better than the traditional trainees, like in special education or education. But you're right, Joe, uh, it's, the, it's the conceptual training, the foundation that seems to be um, chipped away a bit. Uh, and, and that foundation is important, obviously, because it, it kind of uh, influences our whole behavior and we kind of stay on the true, the scientific true uh, uh, that way. Um, so the training, uh, I think we've dispensed with the conceptual training uh, intensity uh, to shape up the practitioners. I agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah so I think the, the dangers of assuming that we, uh, the royal we, have this radical behaviorist worldview is that you might end up with someone um, that you're either supervising uh, or that works with you that might be providing or, or looking at behavior through a different lens and ends mm -hmm. up going for an, a potentially alternative intervention because of the conceptualization of, of behavior from that worldview. Totally, totally. That's what Shrek et al. found in 2016, where these uh, respondents report that their supervisors suggested they try like uh, sensor degradation or I don't think they any tried rebirthing, but you get the point, right? That their supervisors are suggesting this and that's due to um, some wobbliness on the part of the supervisors. You know, they're not trained well enough to suggest only uh, scientifically supported treatments and the worldview. And that's why it's such a big problem. You know, if we continue, if, if these supervisors impact their trainees this way, then when those trainees become trainers and supervisors, well, they do the same thing. And there's a further erosion, in my opinion, on the, the um, degree to which we're all radical behaviorists, which is the way we all started back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, you know. Mm -hmm. oh, and I think it's important to note that, you know, like Skinner said, the organism's always right. Um, so we can't necessarily blame or place blame on the organisms that we're talking no. about in this situation. What we need to do is look at the, the context and the prevailing conditions that are continuing to perpetuate this mm -hmm. and figure out how to right the ship mm -hmm. uh, to, to bring back the radical behaviorism, so to speak. Yeah, well, that comes down to training. I think we all know, right? Good supervision. It's great that the BACB is, is focused so much on that. And they seem, they seem to be continuing to focus on that and shaping it uh, more and more. But yeah, it comes down to training, right? And, uh, and uh, the training programs have to infuse it. But then, you know, the reality of that is the number of hours it takes to train, you know? And if a graduate program has a huge number of hours, students probably won't go to it because they'll go to another training program that has fewer hours and costs less. So it's a real hard problem. It's a real hard problem. One solution that some of us talk about you know, I don't have the influence, I think, on the BACB or the ABAI these days is to uh, uh, take people only into the master's degree, uh, only into a master's program. So you have them for two years, right? And that's better than like a six or seven course sequence. And maybe there's some hope for that too, perhaps. Although they just changed the rules back to now any master's can uh, go into training. But that might be a possibility in a few years where 
you require people to get a master's degree. What have you guys have you guys heard anything about that in your work or contacts? Uh -huh. We we have we have not. Um, I think we're always under the opinion that uh, certification sets the bar of what yeah. programs are going to do, yeah. and so anything that we can get that bar to be raised a little higher is going to be yeah sure going to be better and would be good yeah sure master's programs mm -hmm. will follow almost like yeah. a changing criterion design yeah it is kind of yeah mm -hmm. which is uh, all right it makes sense to me I, you know the practical the you know practically it's I think it's hard to make uh, gigantic, significant, huge changes in a short period of time. So I, I kind of support conceptually the, the, the changing criterion aspect of all that, as long as they keep moving forward. Yeah. As long as the bar keeps rising. As long as, as, long as it's changing. The bar keeps yeah. rising. Yep. Mm -hmm. As long as it keeps rising. Yeah. Um, so I, we have two questions from newly minted Dr. Wafa Al-Jahani. I'm very proud to say that she earned her doctoral degree last week. Well, congratulations. Uh, so she Congrats. has two questions for you, Dr. Zane. Uh-oh. Uh, the first one is, what about the BCBAs who encourage or allow space for non-behaviorist views? What might be reasons for that? Uh, what are the reasons for BCBAs having non-behavioral views? Uh, for allowing non-behavioral views. Well, why the BACB allows that? No, 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 sorry. Why do BCBA? So why would uh, a behavior analyst allow people to come in with non-behaviorist views into oh. their program, into social media, I assume, where WAF is going with this, into discussions or conferences? Well, um, I think one reason we would allow people to who don't have radical behavioral views to enter into discussions with us or trying to we try to change their minds right and show them the light get them back on the straight and narrow um so that's one reason um i don't know if there's any other reason i don't I, you know sometimes we bring like i've brought people into my program who might have like a business degree you know and there has to be fairly compelling reasons to bring in someone who who really has who has expressed little insight in the behavior analysis and some of those people work out okay it must have been something they said or some historical stuff about them but you take a chance with those people and the more i've gone along the the more i don't want to take chances with people and there might be you know a bias in some sort but i think it's a it's a survival bias, right? I think it's by uh, error on the side of caution where we take people who demonstrate that they understand behavioral analysis, that they demonstrate the science of behavior. Um, and there's a lot of those people around. So why take them rather than take a chance on, on trying to uh, convince someone who might already have a worldview in their head? If, I hope that answers your questions. Well, I, I think it's a, a great answer. And to add to that, maybe another reason would be to educate ourselves on areas of competition or areas of overlap between those different worldviews. I always think about, um, as an example, uh, some of Justin's work with social thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. He tells a story how he went out and bought all of the curriculum uh, and it's hidden somewhere in the back of his closet because he doesn't want people to know they walk into his house that he has a bunch of social thinking curriculum. But I think um, it's, it, it illustrates um, educating yourself on those potential competing worldviews before you determine that they're competing. I think one part is just developing some awareness and, and expanding your repertoire as well. 
Yeah. I do, I do have to say that the dog, my dog Cheyenne, ate uh, the rubber chicken. She found, <laughs> she found it in the closet, and that thing is now torn to to rubbery shreds. So all for the best. All for the best. Uh, worked out well. It was an expensive rubber chicken, though. So. Uh, <laughs> well, Bob Ross went to um, workshops on. Uh, Greenspan, I believe it was, floor time. Yes. I spent money, I'm coming out of the closet now, I've spent money buying uh, Soma's rapid prompting material so I can study that stuff. Uh, so yeah, you wanna buy that stuff to, to uh, read about it, but you know, you can look on the face of some of those things and realize that they're not too uh, uh, scientific, that they're not too empirical. You know, you don't, you can just listen to Soma talk, for example, and know that She's not one of us, you know? And I would say that, yeah, it's good to, to investigate those things in more detail, to, to argue from a deeper knowledge base about um, how they're different from us or how similar they are from us. That's a good thing to do. Yeah, that's a good I, thing. I guess I just want to add for the people listening to this podcast, uh, along with that, is just because it's published or studies published in a journal, a peer-reviewed journal doesn't make it a quality study and so we sometimes run into that as well i think that's something that the audience mm. needs to be aware of that there's a high degree of predatory journals right now mm. where mm. people can pay to play mm. and so that is now getting passed off as science or mm. uh passed off as making points and it's not really quality in any which way and from our worldview we should be able to still be able to um critique that and, and talk about it. Dr. Yeah. Al-Jahani has a follow-up question. Um, how can we keep each other accountable when we see a lack of this conceptual training, especially on social media, since it can easily spread and influence a much larger group of individuals? Well, I think that's, in, that's why it's important, I think, to respond to these individuals. You know, people have told me that you don't want to reinforce them. Like I was talking to somebody the other day and about some screed that some anti-behaviorists had put out about behavior analysis. And uh, his comment was um, essentially, um, he's going to get attention if we respond, so don't respond. And I can understand that logic, but if it goes on, on, um, Unre uh, if we don't react to them, then I think there's an impression that it's true. And um, I was actually, I was reading about the elections. I'll talk about the elections because of, it, uh, because of the election day, but uh, there was a story this week in the paper about how Ed Koch, uh, when he was mayor of New York City, and he was recognized as a good mayor, actually. Um, he had this belief that any complaint about him, any, uh, accusation about him, uh, he had to respond to each one. Because in his view, if he didn't respond to it, uh, people view it to be true. And so that's how I kind of think. I think that um, we need to respond to protect our field. It's not just about us also, you know, it's about our field. And we don't want people to, to label our field as unethical, as abusive, as creating post-traumatic stress disorder, and all these other bad things. I think we need to counter those. Uh, like I said early on in, in the podcast today or in the talk, um, we have an ethical obligation to stand up for our field. And so, you know, I don't know why these people dump all that stuff on uh, 
social media. I don't know what their, the function of that is, but I think we should stand up to it and respond to it in a professional collegial way, but not let it go unchallenged. Yeah, I, I think, uh, Tom, you make a great point that when it's up there, it could kind of be an endorsement of what's going on. I think of, I think of uh, ABI San Diego, the last one, I believe it was San Diego. I don't know how many years it is with COVID. It feels like yeah. years. Um, but I remember walking through it, like the, near the last day, walking through the exhibit hall where mm -hmm. they had like, different ones. I think I talked to you and there's some some guy presenting something non-evidence-based, some kind mm -hmm. of... Mm -hmm. And I think I found you right away. It was sensory stuff. It was sensory stuff, and yeah. and 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 both you you uh, I think talked to the guy. Mm -hmm. I went and I think we planned it out as as you went and talked to the guy. I went to the ABI booth and talked to some people there to try to influence them to get it down mm -hmm. because of how much of an effect that was having. Right. And I think about it. We only saw that like the very last day. Right there was probably three days where people were walking by and some being yeah. influenced by that and mm -hmm. maybe signed up for that therapy. And so that, that's my concern. Mm -hmm. uh, and my concern is we have to start looking at what are the contingencies of what behavior analysts are doing and what, what contingencies are they functioning under? Mm -hmm. I think some, mm -hmm. I think like for me and Joe and, and Tom, I assume for you, it's about, uh, gaining knowledge of finding what's the most effective intervention mm -hmm. and, and good science. I think some others are, as you said, are for monetary reasons mm -hmm. and my drift for that. Um, I know uh, that in Don Bear's retirement uh, ceremony, people talked about that and that the contingencies changed back then. That mm -hmm. was not money. I think for social media, some of it might just be attention and liking the attention that they receive from different groups or from mm -hmm. responses. And, and similar to what, you know, um, likes are really um, important to people. And I think we need to start shaping back the contingencies to what is going to be best for the clients that we serve. I agree. Yeah, we have to keep that bigger goal in mind. And that should um, influence our behavior when we read posts on social media that are critical. What, by responding, what does that serve? Well, it may reinforce uh, this um, alternate view, but it also, our response will protect our field, will get the truth out there. And that's a, a more important consequence than possibly reinforcing uh, somebody who wants a lot of attention by slamming it. And you know, I go back to that ABI example, Justin, you know, the big danger of that exhibit was that, you know, novice BCBAs or, or people who attend our conference will see it there and think that it's part of behavior analysis. And so that just reinforces that attitude and that mindset. Like, well, why don't I go out and do sensory training with, with uh, rocking boards and, and balls that you sit on because it was at ABBA, you know, and that, so you got to keep that clean and separate so that attendees, literally attendees don't get the right or the wrong idea about this stuff that's why we do that as, along with the bigger point that it's not evidence-based practice what is it doing here yeah tom i agree with you but i think it goes more to i mean that's the concern but the bigger concern is not only do they buy into this uh intervention 
but then they're exposing kids and adolescents and adults to that intervention sure. and parents are wasting a lot of money. And as that's you know, right. your work with rapid property method, that's expensive. That's $10,000 yep. for a weekend. Yep. And so if we, if, if in that conference, the person got four people, that means there could be four children that are getting exposed to something yep. and it leads to the potential for tremendous harm. Well, well it's always good to bring it back to that, really that ultimate issue which is protecting clients and improving the the quality of life of the clients and that you're totally true uh, and i think an important distinction between the abai example and um, social media is oftentimes in social media it's a permanent product well with abai after abai left san diego it was gone or after true. that exhibits down it's it's gone um, these things live on social media unless they're they're taken down um, so I think it's, it's like, if I see my child running into the street and I know it's attention, I'm not going to ignore it. Um, right. just because it's for attention, I'm going to go and prevent my child from running out into the street. And I think right. to me, that's how I, I view it on social media. Even if it's for attention, um, it's a permanent product and maybe we can have a good discussion with the person that's posting it, or at least someone who's going to come across it, that permanent product can see a discussion that's happening and make a more informed decision other than this thing that people are ignoring. And that person, like you said, takes it as truth because no one replied. Right. You have two audiences uh, when you respond to a posting on Facebook, right? The, the person who posted it, then you have all the people who are reading it and maybe just forget about the person who posted it. Maybe you can't influence their behavior, but by, by responding in a cogent worldviewish way, uh, you're, you're giving a lot of information to the audience who's reading all that stuff. And that's who you hope to sway, I would say. Right. So, yeah. you know, now that I think about it, that's kind of another reason to respond to these things, not yeah. because you can't change that person's mind, but you want to, kind of educate everybody else who's reading this stuff. Yeah, Tom, I think that's beautifully said. I, I always equate it to um, what's going on today in the election. I mean, Trump supporters are always going to be Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. And Biden supporters are always going to be Biden that's supporters. Right. That's and what right. they're both uh, doing right now is trying to get the people in the middle and the undecided. And, the right. undecided. and I think it's our job that, you know, people who, have, who are so far removed from our worldview, mm -hmm. it's going to be hard to influence them to, to join right. us. But it's those right. people on the fence that we wanted to get them more onto our side right. and understand what facts really are. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of those people are board certified behavior analysts. Yeah. And I think it, it just illustrates to me that board certified behavior analysts doesn't mean thoroughgoing radical behaviorists. And I think it's important for everybody to know that distinction when they're approaching training or potentially hiring. Well, that's for sure true. Just because you're board certified doesn't mean you're a radical behaviorist, unfortunately. Yeah. It all should be. Right? So Tom, I'm gonna to leave you with this final question before we unfortunately have to wrap up because it's been great spending time with you. I don't think I've seen you for over a year at this no, point. It's been a long time. Is of COVID. Um, <laughs> that what would be your hope in the next three years? How would you like to see it? What do you hope to see in the field in the next three years? And how do we get reach your hopes? Mm. Well, I think that if we all were radically behavioral, then a lot of these problems would clean up. There'd be better training, more improvement for the clients, as you noted, uh, and there'd be less uh, practice 
um, and less drifting. So that's, that would be my hope. I'd, I'd like to get back to radical behaviorism as it was back in the 60s and the 70s, where we all cut our teeth on the Skinner boxes and the animal training and all that, like we talked about. How to get there? Well, uh, it comes down to training. Um, there's no, I mean, it comes down to training, right? And supervision. But the supervision can't really change until the training changes, because that's where the supervisors come from, right? So I would like to see um, ABAI and or the BACB uh, include more training on the conceptual stuff. And I've heard rumors about that too. Uh, don't know how true those rumors are. Uh, and like I said earlier, I think it could be improved if um, the other rumor I heard came true, which is that, um, that we require a master's degree level training. Yeah, somebody wrote an article about how, um, it might've come out at some of the meetings we've had over the years, about how other disciplines have training of their, of their uh, certification, certific certificates, right? And a lot of people have like um, practicum or you know, post-training practica and things like that. So compare ours, like a seven course training for people with already who have a master's degree versus a two or three year internship type of thing. So, you know, maybe my hope would be that uh, we go to a more intensive training model like that, and that would help solve the problem. But then we'd have the opportunity to really assimilate these people back into the natural science and the worldview. Well, Tom, it's been fantastic having you on. I hope you enjoyed your experience. I have. I love to rant and, get, and be, have it be legitimate. So that's great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate, especially today on election day, I know right before this, I called my mom and asked how her heart was doing. Uh, she said she's staying up all night and has cleaned the house multiple times with uh, a <laughs> with, uh, great fear of what, what's going to end up tonight or in the following week. Well, you know, look at uh, the, the public will survive. The Republic will survive and the sun's going to come up in the morning. I think we have to keep that in mind. No one like lose their minds or anything like that. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but I should, yeah. I should, I should get you on a three-way call with uh, you and my, mo my mother and uh, <laughs> and let her know that. Well, um, the sun will come up. So. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, part of this is obviously, as Joe mentioned, these are free podcasts, unless you want to use, uh, which pay for different things. Uh, one thing that it's paying for, uh, the, if you pay for CEUs, is uh, we are taking on two uh, doctoral fellows, two people who are interested in getting their doctoral degree in behavior analysis who will come work for Autism Partnership Foundation for three years and uh, get the kind of training that Tom has talked about. So really understanding the conceptual uh, systems behind our science and get to be trained uh, in uh, quality progressive ABA. So I encourage uh, if you're listening on the podcast world, if you're interested, please contact us, go to our, our homepage and contact me directly. It's uh, very competitive. We only have two spots, I believe, but we're looking for those people really interested in receiving a lot of training. Uh, also, as always, a lot of what Autism Partnership Foundation has done is for free, including our RBT training, which has over a hundred and, Joe? I think we're probably at 110 now. 110. I lost track once wow. we got over 100K. 110,000. I know uh, Dr. Milne is working on a free eight-hour supervision training, which will be free mm -hmm. forever. 
Uh, so this is all happens by donation. So anyone that can donate uh, any dollar helps, uh, we would be very appreciative. Uh, so please, if you can, uh, donate uh, to Autism Partnership Foundation. And so with that, if you want uh, CEUs, uh, go to www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast, uh, add the ramp to your cart, answer a question about the uh, keywords, which the opening was go, the closing is vote. Again, that's go vote uh, and uh, check out and get a CEU for this. <laughs> so with that, uh, we have in two weeks, we have the another rants with Justin Joe and our guest will be Pat Wright and Elizabeth Fong will be talking about cultural humility and other related topics. And that'll be the 17th. That'll be a great rant. I'm looking forward to it. So everybody, mm -hmm. uh, be safe, wear masks, go vote, and have a great day. That's it from Rants with Justin and Joe. Bye, everybody. Thanks again, Tom. Uh, Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. <laughs>